Good morning, Journey. Good to see you all. My name's Chris. If we haven't met before, glad to meet you, I guess, from uh, up here. Uh, glad we get to share the space together, be here together. It's always a, an honor for me to, to know that I get to share God's word with all of you. Um, today, before we jump into our newest series called Suffering Loves Company, I have some exciting personal news I want to share with you, my Journey Church family. And as I uh, informed my mom last service, it's, it's not that we're pregnant. I promised her that I would, I would at least text her and let her know that. Um, kidding. I would, I would actually call my mom. I would, I promise, okay? Um, but speaking of birth, it is part of my announcement. Uh, I'm going to begin the process, or I've actually begun the process of planting a church or birthing a church, if you want to use that analogy, and in downtown Phoenix, we're calling our church Kaleo Phoenix. So yeah, there, look, it's got cactus and everything because that's what's down there. And we, we're, we've been in the process of, of beginning this now for the last few months, myself and, and my friend Chase are, are co-planting this church together. We've been gathering in homes uh, for a while and we'll launch into Sunday services in September. Um, but I wanted to, to share it with all of you, not just like so you know what's going on, but because Journey Church as a family, which you may or may not know, has just been so foundational and influential in who I am and who I've become and how, how God's used me uh, and taught me and formed me. It's a, it's a vision to plant a church that God put in my heart like eight to 10 years ago. And, and so I've carried it waiting to see how it would come to fruition, what that would look like. And so when I came back to Journey Church about two years ago, uh, you may or may not know this, I live in Phoenix where my wife is currently uh, an emergency medicine resident and that's where we've lived for the last five years. And I go back and forth and spend some time uh, here and there. And so we've, we've been just praying about where we would plant the church. Were we gonna stay in Phoenix? Is that what we were gonna do? And so uh, here we are in this stage of our lives. And part of me is like really excited and uh, thrilled. I'm sent by Journey. Like you guys are a big part of that. I'm empowered by Journey, but I'm also quite unsettled at the same time. And it helps that this is the third time I've talked about it, but I was even shakier like the, the first couple of times I said it because there's just something about stepping into a thing that God's asking you to do or has been asking you to do for a long time and actually doing it that I suppose is frightening. And, and so I was trying to like navigate that unsettled feeling. And so I was inviting some of my friends to pray for me. And uh, my friend, Jimmy, who's a part of our core team at Kaleo, he, he sent me this in response. And I wanted you all to hear it because I felt like he just had a great pulse on, on what I was wrestling with, what you all mean to me and what we're hopeful for in the future. So here, here's what he said to me when I asked him to, to pray through this feeling of being unsettled. He said, the sense I have in the Holy Spirit is that you're voicing a commitment to people you don't want to let down because you know they believe in you. If that's the case, I pray the encouragement you need to move forward with it because either way, I feel God wants you to go down this road. He's excited to bless you by your act of obedience and will squelch any unsettledness as you continue to walk this journey. I pray that those you are speaking to receive you well and are encouraged to follow in your footsteps of taking care of God's garden wherever they are. I'm so encouraged by your efforts in this journey. You and Pastor Chase are going to do a brilliant job. Esther and I will be right there beside you both along the way in support. God bless you. I'll be praying. I just thought it was one, I mean, it was what I needed to hear too, but I just thought it covered 
what, what I was processing in all of that. So, so thanks for any part you've played in, in my own spiritual journey. Uh, the hope is that uh, over the next seven months, uh, I'll kind of like slowly transition out of my time here in Journey. So I'll still be preaching and that sort of thing through the end of August. And, and then we'll fully transition to Phoenix, but we hope to maintain some sort of relationship, ongoing relationship with the Journey Church family so that you guys have like a sister family in downtown Phoenix. Honestly, I would imagine you would want to try try and check it out like in February or March, like just a good time to thaw out, come down, hang out with us in Phoenix. So you're always welcome uh, to do that. You can also find out more of what we're up to uh, on our website, kaleophx.org, and we'll update there and you can be just praying for us, really. Honestly, that would be great. Also, you can, I mean, you can always give there too, but if you're praying, that would be awesome. Um, okay, uh, thank you. You guys are nice. The 8.30 and the 11.30 clapped. I don't know what that means, about 10. So you guys, you, you, guys, you guys are now in the top two, at least, for favorite services. Okay, hard, hard turn into a sermon because I did bring one of those with me today too. Uh, something that I, I do, I wanna share with us and I think is important and, and maybe even a bit of a challenging word. We're, joining, or we're entering into a series called Suffering Loves Company in which we're joining in the church season of Lent. And the season of Lent is inaugurated with Ash Wednesday, which happened about a week and a half ago, right? And the idea of the season of Lent and the the history of the church is that we would essentially follow Jesus into the wilderness, that, that we would fast and we would wait and we would join him in his suffering and we would pay attention to the reality that that hope is on the horizon, but we would take a moment to stop and sit and be still and to wait. And she would look around us and engage our own pain and our own suffering and the suffering of our world. And so the idea behind this series of Suffering Loves Company is this idea that we don't suffer alone. God's with us, that'll be a big theme here, but also that we need each other in all of that. And so what we'll do is we'll just take a look at different characters throughout the scripture who've suffered. And we'll pay attention to the ways in which they've suffered and the ways in which they haven't suffered alone. Today, we're gonna start with uh, a unique Bible character. Her name is Hagar. And I'll introduce you to Hagar here in a moment, but first let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive into all that we have today. God, we just thank you so much that you're a God who meets us where we are. We thank you that we can gather together as your body. I pray that we would not take that gift for granted. And that as we share this space with one another, that we're also sharing this space with you, that you're among us that your spirit is already moving in our lives to transform us and shape us and mold us and make us more like your son, Jesus. I pray that we would uh, allow you to do that. Would you give us ears to hear what it is you have to say to us as individuals and us as a church? And then would you give us the boldness to act in obedience, to be the people you've called us to be, God? I pray for myself too this morning that you just give me your words to speak. Pray I wouldn't say anything that's not for you or from you. And that everything that we do and everything that we've already done would honor you, bring glory to you, make much of you. God, we thank you that you're a God who loves us. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So we've got Hagar here. Hagar, she was an Egyptian slave. And she was an Egyptian slave owned by Sarah, who ended up being the mother of God's people, Abraham's wife, who gave birth to their first son, the one first descendant of many descendants that God had been talking about. And here tucked into this story that involves Sarah and Abraham, we have their Egyptian slave, Hagar. And that's who we're gonna look at today, a different angle to this story, if you will. And in order to uh, engage 
Hagar's story well, we're gonna have to do a few things that will require, on some level, hard work, I guess, of us. Because here's, here's what's gonna be needed. We're gonna need to be empathetic people. We're gonna need to show empathy. And then by that, I, don't, I mean not just sympathy. Sympathy is when we can, in fact, feel bad for somebody but disconnect emotionally from what they're experiencing. It's almost like a defense mechanism. If, like it's needed and you can't always enter into it. But we need to be empathetic. We need to join Hagar in her suffering. We need to engage and connect with her emotional experience. That's empathy, and that's the hard work that's gonna be required of us today. So to step into our story, here are the four things that we're gonna do. We're gonna decide. We're gonna decide that Hagar is worth connecting empathetically with. We're deciding that now on some level. Hopefully, you're like, okay, I don't know what that means, but I'm, I'm with you, I'm trying. Okay, I'm prepared to do that. Next thing we'll do is we'll identify will identify the emotional experience that Hagar is having. Not just her situational experience, but what she's experiencing to the core of who she is. What's going on beneath the surface, if you will. And as we do that, then the third thing we'll do is we'll recall. We'll recall a time in which we've had a similar emotional experience. We won't identify the same situation because I'm doubting that we'll have uh, that to identify with, but uh, when we felt the way that Hagar might have felt. So you can begin as I'm teaching and talking, recalling some of those times in which you maybe had a similar emotional experience. And then the last part of what we'll do is we'll play out what we wanted and needed most in that moment. So I want, I want those things happening kind of like behind the curtain as I guide us this morning. We're gonna practice self-awareness. We're gonna pay attention to our gut impulses as we engage in the story of Hagar. And all of this is in preparation to reflect on what God is longing to do in us and through us during a season in the wilderness because that's where Hagar finds herself as well. Here's how this story begins. Genesis 16, beginning in verse one. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, which just so we're all on the same page, this is in fact Abraham and Sarah, right, who God uses to make God's people, said to Abraham, I'm gonna give you descendants, you're gonna bless the nations, but at this point in time, God has not yet changed their names. So they're Abram and Sarai, same people though. So now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. But she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar, so Sarai said to Abraham, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abraham as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Okay, it's an intense story, right? It's an intense story. And typically we probably engage such a story as this from the lens of Abram and Sarai. We're gonna, we're gonna look at it through the lens of Hagar in this. So we have Hagar, she's a woman. She's a foreigner and she's enslaved and she has no say over her own body. Her only source of power in this story is her own fertility, that she's able to give birth to a child and even that is being manipulated without her say. It's an intense situation because what we have here is a promise that God had given to Abram to give him a child and then grow his descendants from there. That was 10 years prior to this. 
And God has not done that. And so what do Abram and Sarai do? They take it into their own hands and now they're living lives that are impatient and faithless and irresponsible. And as they do that, their own suffering and struggle with God's promise coming to fruition in their lives is now causing suffering for other people. Other people are suffering because of their lack of trust in what it is that God had promised them, what it is that he laid before them. And so in light of that, as we're engaging Hagar's story empathetically, we should ask ourselves the question, why would a slave being used for sex, forced into growing and birthing someone else's child, think highly of or bless her enslaver? Right, obviously, when we sit in Hagar's shoes, we're like, I get why contempt grew within Hagar. So now we're engaging her story. But someone has to be at fault. Seems like that's always the case. Here's what happens in verse five. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. And all of us are having relational conversations come back to our mind. If you're married, I'd imagine somebody said this at some point in time in your marriage. This is all your fault. So Abram and Sarai are in the same predicament. And Sarai says this to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms and now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Which essentially she's acknowledging that this whole situation is wrong. But she just doesn't want to take the blame for it. So Abram replied, look, she's your servant. So deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. So here's Sarai who has say over what happens to Hagar and she continues her, her domination of Hagar. After seizing her sexuality and her fertility, she continues to abuse her by treating her harshly. And that language of harshly, it's intense language. In light of that translation, harshly, Dr. Wilda Gaffney says this. She says, Sarai's oppression of Hagar in Genesis 16:6 is the same as Egypt's oppression of Israel in Exodus 1:11 ultimately leading to God's liberating intervention. What she's saying is the intensity of the oppression that Hagar is enduring at the hands of Sarai is the same intensity of oppression that God's people Israel endured at the hands of Egypt. Now hold on for a second, because where is it that Hagar is from again? Egypt. Isn't that interesting? Sarai and Abram, who represent the people of God, who become the people of Israel, in this situation are oppressing the Egyptian woman who's their slave in the same way in which then later in Exodus, Egypt oppresses Israel. But what happens is that ultimately God's liberating intervention comes. However, at this stage in the story for Hagar, that's not true. God has not intervened. And so what does she do? She has to liberate herself and she runs away into the wilderness. 
And now if you're doing what I've asked you to do and you're engaging with this story emotionally of what Hagar's enduring, you would understand why she might then eventually go, I am going to run away. All of the things that have been forced on her and the way in which she's been treated, certainly running away seems like a legit option. And so I want you to just think for a moment, when you're in the midst of suffering, where do you go? Where do you go when you suffer? It could be a physical location, mental, spiritual, emotional. Where do you go when you suffer? Because Hagar, in the midst of her suffering, runs away into the wilderness. Here's what she encounters there. Verse seven. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness. I will tell you this, we have a biblical theme of God always showing up in the wilderness. And this spring of water was along the road to shore. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. And you've got to think that at that moment, that was not what Hagar wanted to hear. She ran away into the wilderness to get away from her suffering. Now she's encountered a messenger from God who seems to care where she's come from and where she's going. And the first thing this messenger says is you need to return to your master and submit to her authority. And if you are doing any of what I've asked you to do and and emotionally engaging with Hagar, you are disturbed. That's not what you want to hear. So here's what the angel of the Lord goes on to say. He added this, I will give you more descendants than you can count. Which is interesting because that's a promise that God had given Abram and Sarai. And then the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. And now maybe Hagar is hearing from the Lord something that matters, that God hears her cry. That as she calls out in the wilderness for something to change, God hears her. Then he finishes by saying this, this son of yours, Ishmael, will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. And we're just watching generation upon generation of dissension and distrust and taking situations into our own hands, just causing all kinds of destruction. So what's going on here? We have an angel of the Lord. It's actually more accurately described as a messenger of God. So I don't want you to think angel of the Lord like glowing with wings shows up in the wilderness next to the spring to be with Hagar. It would actually be more accurate to say that God came in disguise. The messenger of God came in disguise. Not glowing, not beaming, but in disguise. And even then, we should pause for a moment and ask ourselves, when are we missing God in disguise in our own lives? Where are we missing him? So here we have Hagar, an Egyptian, an African woman who is a slave. The woman who's oppressed hails from Egypt, not Israel. And here we have God going to the outsider in this text. 
God going and meeting Hagar in the wilderness, not the one that we would expect him to go to. And what's so interesting about this is this is God's redeeming movement and what it's always been about. It's always been for all people. The people just keep messing it up. And so he's gotta keep showing up in the wilderness and reminding people who he is and what he's about. And that he would go and meet the Egyptian slave and say, I hear you, I see you, I'm with you. It's a challenging picture. Because the thing about Hagar is that she's not running from God. She's running from real life suffering, from experiences that have been thrust upon her. And yet even in that moment, this messenger of God instructs her to head back to where she came from. Her plight, if you will, it's not fixed. But it's somehow has a perspective shift. Something's changed for Hagar that's even hard for us to articulate because there's this element of this whole thing that's disturbing but comforting at the same time. Here's how Hagar describes it. Verse 13, thereafter, which I would assume means thereafter Hagar went back. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. And so just stop there for a second because now she's, what's being identified here is that it was the Lord who spoke to her. God in disguise, right? Like the Lord himself said something to Hagar and she has a whole different name that she gives him. Here's what she said. She said, this is the name. You are the God who sees me. And if you've been even slightly able to identify with the experience that Hagar's been going through, to think that that's the name that she calls God, understand how deep that is, how powerful that is, that she refers to him now as you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Bir Lahoy Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave Abram a son and Abram named him Ishmael. Hagar names a place in the wilderness that reminds all people who pass by that God is a God who sees. God is a God who sees. But all of this and the name she has for God, it's, it's revolutionary, really. Like if you've, been, if you've even like slightly been asleep up to this point, like you need to wake up because this is all I've really wanted to tell you. Like if you've checked out, just welcome back. This is all that matters, actually. This is what you need to hear, okay? Hagar, the oppressed Egyptian slave forced to carry a child and give birth on the run and filled with contempt, she is the only one in all of scripture to give God a name. She's the only one in the canon, the biblical text, to give God a name. And what does she name him? Not the one who sent me back. Not the one who couldn't hear me. Not the one who couldn't see me. She names this God the one who sees me. What? Hagar. 
the oppressed Egyptian slave forced to carry and give birth to a child on the run and filled with contempt is the only character in the scripture to give God a name. And the name she chooses to give God and call him from that point forward is the one who sees me. If even a slice of you has been identifying with Hagar, think of what that means. That your God is a God who sees you. If you fast forward Hagar's story to Genesis 21, she gets tossed out into the wilderness again. Abraham sends her out with Ishmael, gives her some water and they kick her out into the wilderness. Guess who she meets in the wilderness? God. And she's crying out. And again, God confirms that he hears her. Which she knows because she already knows that he sees her. Living water she encounters in the wilderness. She stands in a long line of tradition in which the people encounter God in the wilderness. God hears your cry, God sees you in your suffering even when you're in the wilderness. Which is fitting because the season of Lent follows the path of Jesus's life, where? In the wilderness. And how does Jesus get into the wilderness? The spirit leads him there, right? Right after Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit falls on him like a dove, it says he's filled with the spirit of God and the spirit leads him into the wilderness. The outset of Jesus's ministry is formed in the wilderness. And it's the spirit of God who brought him there. And in that place, he endures the temptations of the enemy. The devil comes three times and tries to tempt him. And how does he resist? The spirit of God is with him. The spirit of God is with him. He resists that temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. He had been fasting, been without, and all he had was God with him. And he comes out of this time in the wilderness. And it says in Luke 4, verse 14, that he went on to Galilee after this. His ministry had begun. But this time it says, he went on to Galilee full of the Holy Spirit's power. Something changed for Jesus in the wilderness. Something changes for us when we walk with Jesus through the wilderness. When we trust the one who's with us. When we know we have a God who sees us and a God who hears us. Certainly Hagar is a great example of it not being all sorted out. It didn't get solved. It didn't get fixed like we wanted it to be fixed. She still endured, but somehow, some way, she was able to move on and carry on and live on because she knew that God sees her. Let us be led into the wilderness during the season of Lent. Let us be willing to sit with our suffering, but long for the living water that we'll encounter of our resurrected savior on the other end, the glimmer of hope that lies in the end of the season of Lent on the other side of the wilderness where our resurrected savior shows us that he has victory over all of that. I wanna just give you space to just sit right here right now and receive the truth that you have a God who sees you. To sit with him and be seen. You can speak to him, you can just rest, whatever it is you need to do. Take a few moments, let him have the last word.
then I'll lead us into communion. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, here we rest together, acknowledging that you are a God who sees us. I pray that we would receive that. Whether we've been through suffering or we're going through suffering or we're going to go through suffering as we know the way in which the world unfolds. May we never lose sight of the arresting truth that you are a God who sees us that you're a God who hears us, that you're a God who's with us. As we wait in the so-called wilderness with you, would we encounter you in ways that we hadn't thought we could encounter you in the darkness, in the shadows, in the pain, And at the same time, would we hold forth the tension, God, that your son, Jesus, whom willingly died on a cross, has been raised to new life and has already defeated the powers of death and darkness and sin. We love you, God, that you're a God who cares enough to meet us. And whatever it is we're experiencing and going through, and I pray, pray that we would receive that and that that would transform us, would soften our lives to receive what it is your spirit of God wants to do in us and through us and help us to become so that you might be glorified and made known in all the world. I love you so much, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net. Thanks.